far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory forever and ever. My beautiful goddaughter, Elvie, is here. She's also Elizabeth Krauss and Jean Ruffin's beautiful goddaughter, and she's here on her honeymoon with her husband, John. But I promise not to embarrass them by calling attempts. So forget that. Another couple, precious to me, who gave me a, uh, the advantage of seeing their wedding up close, Debbie and Michael, are here. Um, Michael and I are frequently seen in uh, National Physical Fitness magazines, pictured side by side. I'm standing on his left and am labeled before. The New Hampshire camp has been going on a long time, and we tell ourselves, or other people tell us, that we are the second oldest camp. We used to meet in a, an island off the coast of New Hampshire. Poor little New Hampshire with its 18 miles of coastline doesn't get many islands, but it has four, and one of which is where we used to meet, a little island one by one mile. At the time I first went there, after World War II, it had one tree. It's up to four or five trees now, but basically it's a rock island. I would say that it's just as beautiful as Winnie, not more so, and has its own special charms. Those of you who like to bathe daily would not find it attractive. There's, you get one shower a week on Tuesday, and if the water supply holds out, you get a second, supply on, a second shower on Friday before you go home, but there's no guarantee of that at all. Um, the uh, faucet on the shower is something that has to be handheld open uh, or it will shut off. So if you've got the face cloth in one hand and the soap in the other hand, then you don't have any water. It's, 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 it's difficult. Um, if you think some of the accommodations here are primitive, you can compare them, uh, lay that alongside. In Glenn Clark's writing, is an extraordinary story, the conclusion of a camp as the storm clouds of World War II had gathered when Hitler had begun his murderous rampage uh, across Europe and was threatening to swallow more countries. And this had been a theme of prayer of the relatively little camp gathered there, smaller in number than we are today. And they had arrived at some consensus of how it was that need as a body to pray for the war. And then it was the day for camp to be over. And there was just a little boat that served the island and it could take only half the campers at once. All the baggage and half the campers left and the little boat was supposed to go into Portsmouth and come back for the rest of the people, Glenn Clark included. But there was a tremendous storm, and the boat never reappeared. And so we're, here were half the CFOers without their baggage, 
The last meal of the season, as far as the hotel was concerned, was the one that had been served at breakfast. And now there were some number of people, 60 or more, that had to be accommodated in a, a great hurry. And this was done. But what do you do in the afterglow of CFO when you really haven't left it? You pray some more. And they took the storm outside the lovely hell and chapel to be some sort of sign of reminder of the angry clouds that were gathering across Europe. They began to pray in very specific ways, in knowledgeable ways, regarding what it was that was going on in Europe, naming names and leaderships and specific opportunities that might yet be open to avert a great war. As a result of their focused prayers, so it is Glenn Clark in his book, that there were windows of heaven that opened upon Europe, that shone upon Adolf Hitler, that shone upon what we call the Allies. There was an opportunity, if it were seized, that it might have led to the peace of that region. I cannot reproduce the details of it, and maybe I don't make it sound credible. Uh, Glenn Clark's narrative is thrilling. It was not a window of heaven that was regarded kindly by the Allies. They were already very angry. They were already in a sense of both fear and desire for retaliation. That special moment for peace passed and the war came, and we know the record of millions upon millions of deaths. It occurred to me as I the news this morning, the potentially ominous and destructive news from the Soviet Union, that we ought to recognize the prayer power of this company, and that we might in some informed way focus our prayers in accordance with the guidance of some few people who have prayed about this together in advance. May I ask that the people who have been to the Soviet Union in their lives stand at this point? I would like you to notice each other, and um, perhaps if you can have the time, if you would be willing to accept this, thank you. Uh, if you would be willing to accept this as a commission, that you come together and talk and pray together and see if you can find the handles on this situation which would guide our prayers as a whole. We need the passing of some time and the deepening of this camp experience for us to believe that this is more than some matter of idle and uh, a futile gesture, but to recognize the true power of two or three or 180 or so who are gathered together in agreement in prayer. One of the great CFO leaders, um, his picture hasn't made it onto a 29 cent stamp, but his picture is on a cent stamp if you should ever buy one. His name is Frank Laubach. He was a congregational minister, a missionary, uh, mostly in the Philippines, uh, had a wonderful record of uh, 
making literacy available to people in many languages and sharing with them the gospel as they learn to read. And he had a prayer balloon that was shaped uh, like the world. And I've alluded to it before when I have spoken here at camp. It seemed it, it, it was a, a, a balloon or something maybe on towards like a soccer ball, but much softer than that. I don't know the material. And it had a kind of permanent slow leak so that when he came to speak, he would hold it up and it wasn't totally deflated, but it was very clearly a world in need of refreshment, in, in need of new breath. Fill it up and so it could be a proper world and not a bedraggled world. And he would unscrew it and he would breathe love into it and it would, the world would blossom into its fullness. And if he knew of any place in the world where there was particular hurt, he would cradle his world and he would pick it up and he would place his lips on behalf of us all, indeed even on behalf of the Spirit of God, and he would pat that place as a child is patted by a parent when the child has a boo-boo and a hurt and the child is crying and the parent says it will be all right. So Frank Laubach uh, patted the globe. Uh, that um, um, one of Frank Laubach's um, balloons is in uh, Annette uh, Gordan's keeping. Not here at camp. Not. Thank you. We want then to pray for this uh, great country. I took, uh, I live not only in a pre-computer universe, I actually live in a pre-Copernican universe. I'm uh, um, really way out to lunch. The last four or five hundred centuries of human civilization escaped me. But I did feel somewhat self-defensively that I ought to take some sort of introductory computer course this year. And so I took something called Introduction to the Macintosh, and it met twice for three hours each at a community college near where I live. And all of us went and sat down in neat little rows in front of something that lo looks like lots of little television sets, whatever they were. And um, we had a perfectly instructor. And he said, I am not going to use any words that you don't understand. I suppose only that you know the difference between on and off, but beyond that you know nothing. And I'm not going to throw any jargon at you. I'm going to hold you by the hand. I know that you are not only ignorant, but you are frightened. And that you believe that even peeps styrofoam between their ears can handle a computer better than you can. You have come here in the certain knowledge of your own defeat vis-a-vis -vis this technological marvel. And I am going to prove to you in six hours' time that it isn't as frightening as you think. And we had this um, wonderful introductory presentation 
and um, for all kinds of designs that we created, and we played games with it, and it made music for us. And then as the grand finale, sort of as our graduation present as we moved to the fifth of the sixth hours of creation, we were invited to design our own party invitation. Now, I don't know how well you know me, but no one has ever thought of me as a party animal. I did, however, enter into this project with a certain sense of abandon, and I devised an invitation which was general enough that any of you could feel welcome to attend. I did put the date as February 30th, just in case, just in case anybody got carried away. And I got to choose the type and there was only one typographical error on it, and I got to illustrate it, and I got a bunch of uncorked bottles with bubbles coming out of it, and this most wonderful array of balloons. And when I saw all of this sitting in its near perfection in front of my own little television set, or whatever it was, I pushed a button, and halfway across the room, as if by magic, my invitation came out. Very proud of that. Are you proud of me? Yes. Thank you. It is very possible for people who are coming into their first CFO or their very first intensive Christian experience not to feel that they know what is going on not to understand the words that are being used, to be frightened, feel I, of all possible candidates for CFO, am likely to be a failure. If we speak over your head, I am sorry. We do not understand this as a gateway ministry. We just sort of assume that you've had all kinds of church experience and good stuff, Sunday school and confirmation and adult class and all of these things. We assume that, but we know that in specific instances, true. We live in an era where a majority of adults are strangers to the Christian church. And some of you may be here, and I do apologize if I am saying things that frighten or confuse. I hope they will come clear. I want to say some more about prayer this morning. There are all these wonderful systematic books about prayer that have been thought out and have undergone all manner of revisions. I'm just sort of up here um, in a kind of ham-handed, amateurish way trying to recall my own feeble efforts in prayer over the years. I think we are most likely to pray when we receive bad news. Someone has died or someone is dying, maybe it's ourselves, and we just instinctively blurt, stammer something, not a gut reaction as such, but it's a human reaction. 
I was a Quaker for 44 years, and Quakers have a reputation for being peaceful people, but you never know that from knowing the Quakers in Worcester, Massachusetts. We were a scrappy bunch. And one of the issues over which we got into a long wrangle was how our parsonage was best to be used. Should the retired minister, whom we had paid not even in peanut shells, for his long ministry, to whom we had given no pension, who had no major medical policy, did we owe him the rest of his life in the parsonage, or did we owe the parsonage to the new minister who was trying to get established? And any of you who might be in the work of church administration might chew over that one in terms of how to figure that out. There were two sides to that situation, and grandmother was on the side of her peer, the retired minister. And she gave a very impassioned speech one night at a business meeting. I've never seen her so worked up before. And when it was over, she fainted. Fainted, as they say, dead away. And I thought that maybe she was dead or was dying. I went to another place in our building and I dropped to my knees. Now, if you're a Roman Episcopalian, dropping to your knees doesn't seem all that strange, but Quakers pretty much take prayer sitting down. And this was an extreme thing for me to do, and no one had ever taught me to do it, and no one had ever said to me, God is more likely to listen to your prayers on your knees. I just did it because I didn't want to let my grandmother go. There's a saying, I think it arose out of World War I, that there are no atheists in foxholes. Uh, foxholes are holes in the ground that are dug by soldiers who wish to be below the line of fire and to be sheltered from the uh, percussion of explosive devices above ground. The thought that there are no atheists in foxholes is based upon an observation that all people, whether they claim to believe in God or not, in a moment of crisis will cry out, whoever, whatever, if you're there, help me. It's sort of the equivalent of, I want mommy. By the way, I did read that there was a national convention of atheists that met sometime earlier this month, and among the other matters which they have announced by way of proclamation to the world is that there are atheists in foxholes. Uh, I'm not sure that I am enlightened by that because I can't imagine that very many people who went to that convention have ever been in a foxhole. <laughs> us who have so prayed either for ourselves or for others are clearly the survivors. We're here. Other people who s similarly cried were not in this life saved, and they have gone on, saved in another and larger sense. Whether we have thanked God after our prayer has been answered or not is maybe not beside the point. It is beside the point at this time. But we have to wonder afterwards God's fingers entered into the mechanism of our lives and made some sort of critical, fine-tuned adjustments in response to our prayers. And then we can further wonder 
Well, if we hadn't prayed, wouldn't it have turned out the same way? And for those of you of scientific curiosity, you see, it's no way to prove that one way to other, because if something is prayed for, then you can't ask what it been like if it hadn't been prayed for, because it was prayed for. And the reverse is true. If you don't pray for something, and you might have prayed, then you will never be able to say how circumstances might have changed, we believe for the better, had you prayed. Back when I was in seminary, and they had nothing better to do with their time down in Duke University than conduct mindless experiments, <clears throat> they decided that they would try to prove or disprove the power of prayer by paying for plants. And this, as I recall, is how the experiment was set up. There were a bunch of plants in this room and a bunch of plants in that room. Both plants had equal access to light and water and fertilizer, um, whatever, all the good things that plants are supposed to need. The only difference was the plants in this room were prayed for and the plants in this room were not prayed for. The experiment began and the little plants came up and became bright and became little child plants and little adolescent plants. And these plants grew, and these plants grew, and there was absolutely no difference between the two sets of plants. Just as the research team was about ready to write its conclusion that, there, that prayer makes no difference, a couple of the research assistants came facedly that they felt so sorry for the plants in this room that they had been sneaking prayers. The rest of the prayers I want to talk about today have nothing to do with a crisis as such, but the prayers that we choose to pray. Now, mostly if we pray, it has to do with unimportant things. There may very well be a deadline, uh, something that we must meet ourselves, some sort of preparation test, examination, or a decision we have to give to somebody, a yes or a no, or someone who is counting on us to be wise for them needs to hear our word, and so we pray. We don't pray for pebbles in our shoes. We take our shoes off and shake them out, and the pebble is gone. We don't pray for the recovery of a mosquito bite. We just allow it to run its course, and our body will repair it. But we do pray for um, matters that are important, but not dreadfully important. They're not the kinds of things we'd make an appointment with a therapist for. But you don't need an appointment to talk to God. And because we are people of faith, we talk to God about these things before the time that we have to make that decision. It is our article of faith that we always have God's attention. It's as if all of us have a computer terminal, or maybe rather more that all of us are computer terminals, and that we are permanently connected to, wired into a storehouse of information that never sleeps. This great computer is never down. 
I do not count my six hours of study of computer technology adequately. Think of all the analogies that there are between God as storehouse of an incredible and for us not to be mastered amount of information. Uh, that's for some of you who are more immersed in the modern world than I am. But I do believe that if scripture were being given a 20th century spin, that that interconnectedness would be an image that would be useful in explaining how it is that God can hear so many prayers at once and not become confused. I believe that one of the most important aspects of prayer is for us to be able to tell God our... Now, our story might be told the first time, blurted, stammered, stuttered, moderately incoherent, facts wrong, wrong sequence of events, etc. And does it matter when we talk to God whether we get the story of our life right or wrong? God knows and can do that reordering. But no, it is important that we get the story right. To be able to say to God, help me tell you my story so that I will be able to understand my story so that I will be able to understand myself, what I have done, or why I was paralyzed in inaction. Help me to understand the other people to know what that they have done, what they have done, or failed me in ways that they have failed me. Help me to understand my full range of emotions especially the ones that swamp me and seem to be like so many knives in me and rob me of sleep and rob me of joy and rob me of any sense of forward motion in my life. And we say to God, my story is written to this point. Now, how do I write my life story? How do I go from here onward? We could always say by way of remorse, Oh God, if only I had checked this with you six months ago or six years ago or whatever. But the if-onlys are beside the point. Now is the time that we ask the author of life to help author our story. There is a delightful discovery within our household of faith, and that is that the God who listens to us, who we understand as somehow outside, is the God who is working within us, helping us to tell the story. God is helping us choose the ordering of the paragraphs. God is helping us find the most accurate 
word in our vocabulary to describe what has gone on and what is going on. God is enabling us to provide a narrative that is not only factual, but is also true. That is that it resonates with the very deepest and highest places of creation. Our story, especially this chapter which we are now writing, this chapter which is so troublesome, this thicket in which we find ourselves with all its brambles and thorns, God helps us to put that story in a larger context. God gives us a vantage point by which we can rise to God's vantage point to look down on the whole of our lives. To many of us, one of the saddest phenomena in lives is the suicide of a young person. So often because the enormous predicament in which they have found themselves cannot be put by their own effort in sort of long-term context. It is not simply an episode, not simply a chapter of life which shall be followed by many better chapters. It is rather the end point. It was 53 weeks ago yesterday at 9.15 on a Sunday morning that my gallbladder knocked on the door of my tummy and said, I want this person removed. <laughs> and the gallbladder had its way and I was removed. Now there are some wonderful new laser techniques which are relatively simple. They're almost day surgery, but I had the old slash and snatch. <clears throat>
I had 15 minutes to get into my pulpit and conduct uh, an hour's worth of worship, and I went down to church sweating, pale, clutching my stomach, hung onto the pulpit for dear life, the sermon. As I was preaching it, I knew that I would be in the hospital later that morning if I didn't die on the way. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I guess that any of us who live with Jesus Christ who died and was risen from the dead are willing to be with him in any of the circumstances in which he has he found himself in life, in death, in resurrection. Didn't want to die, but talked to God about it. Got through the service. As you might imagine, I was magnificent. <laughs> Ran up to the parsonage, closed all the parsonage windows, gathered up a little reading material, and drove myself over to the hospital. There was a test that was needed on a Monday some tests you can't get on Sunday, and so the surgery was postponed until Monday evening, which was a wonderful interval. Call up some number of my CFO friends and say, hey folks, guess what sort of an adventure I'm going to have tomorrow? Will you pray with me? And there were all kinds of wonderful prayers and cards and phone calls and visits because you are my family, and that's very special. I was able in the midst of this pain and in the midst of the anxiety of what it would be like and how unpleasant it was and the possibility that I on the operating table, I was able to see this unpleasantness in a larger context, in the context of God's love, in the context of God's promises for my eternity and I tried to worry about it. I really did. I tried to worry about it, and I couldn't manage it. <laughs> I had surgery when I was in college. And the night before the operation, I said to God, I would like you to give me some assurance that you love me, and what I'm about to embark upon will be all right. Now, some hospital rooms have magnificent views, and other hospital rooms have nothing but a brick wall from some other part of the hospital. I had one of those dreary views. But there was a telephone line that ran across my line of sight out the window. And about 30 seconds after I asked for some reassurance of God's love, a little squirrel ran out into what for me was the middle of my field of vision of the, of the line. And it raised itself to full height and began peering in the direction of my room. I assume that it didn't know why that, and I don't think it saw anything very interesting. I was not a, I didn't have an acorn supply on the windowsill or anything. And it satisfied its curiosity and probably shrugged its shoulders and said nothing there for me, and it scampered out of sight. But for the little 
instant that this little creature of God was standing tall and peering into my window, I took its presence, and I believe that I am warranted in having taken presence to mean to me, Greg, you will be all right now and in the fullness of time. We should tell our story to God and indeed allow God to tell the eternal story through us in such a way that our story always includes a way of escape, always includes hope, always includes a sense of anticipation about the future even if the present is durable. The sickest that I have ever been was on a ferry from Block Island, Rhode Island, to the mainland. The port is called Galilee. It's known to be an especially choppy stretch of water, and although we haven't eaten for an hour and won't eat for a couple of hours, hence I will spare you many of the details of the trip. However, I was as emptied as empty can be. And still, after there wasn't anything more that my stomach could find to disgorge, there were still the pull of what are called dry heaves, the mechanics of the stomach. And I was a rebel, and I was sitting out on the deck of the ship and it was pouring rain uh, uh, like Mount Washington. You must think I spent a lot of my life in the pouring rain. And I was sitting next to a garbage can, strategic location. And through all of that misery, I could affirm, not at a level of satisfaction, I didn't that passes understanding from it, but I knew that once the ship came to shore, I wouldn't be sick anymore, and I would feel better again. And that is what happened. And if we tell our story back to God in such a way, however rough the present journey is, however we dislike the summer of 1991 and some of the details of August 91 and some of the specters from September of 91 that we anticipate, that is but the journey that ends in peace. It shall surely end in peace. Oh, by the way, with regard to our habit, even if we're not first-class liars, we do, all of us, have a self-defensive habit to make ours seem somehow a little bit better, a little bit sweeter, a little bit more reasonable than is actually the case. And so when we tell our story to other people, we are likely to embroider it a bit just so they will think, well, if not better of us, not as badly as they would if we told them the unvarnished truth. 
It is important, of course, to have humor to our story. But you see, it is very, very important that we allow God to hear our story because we can't pull the wool over God's eyes. We can't make things better than they are. We cannot slant the story. We cannot use psychology. We cannot flatter, coax, cajole, whatever God. The story is But there's a flip side to that, and I want to say that by word of encouragement. There's a lot said in this world about conceited and arrogant people who go around with their nose up in the air for some reason or other, um, presumed superiority or whatever it is. I am convinced that far more prevalent and far more mischievous in this world, far more epidemic among those of you sharing this lovely chapel with me is that you don't think enough of yourselves and that an awful lot of the sorrow that is unnecessary in your life comes about because of a terribly poor self-image. I'm thinking back some 30 years, although, although there are a half dozen of us in the room who will remember this person, I, I shall not name him, but he, the rest of you don't know him, so don't try to think you don't. I'm going to describe him as a very tall person, but he's not a very tall person who's been to camp any time within the last 20 years. He was very tall at age 16, 17. It was very easy for him to pass as a college student. And perhaps the rest of us were somewhat envious of him that he could sneak into the adult world and not get caught because of his fissure. He said to me once after camp had been going on five or six days, by way of self-confession, I'm just a little, and I will not use the word that he used, it's, it's a four-letter word, it has to do with human excrement, his own self-image, and I was astonished. Here was this tall person striding through life, and he saw himself as just a little inconsequential, insignificant something or other whose proper fate is to be flushed away. One of the great freeing and liberating powers telling our story to God so that it is not only factual but it is also true is that God will not let us describe ourselves in any demeaning terms which are less than the fullness of the daughter or the son whom God has created. If you hadn't noticed, I've been speaking a lot lately, and we so very, very much want to know Lucille and know 
not only that she is a speaking leader, but that she does speak to us into our inner being, and we are hungry and thirsty for the reservoir of her Christian experience that she will share with us tonight and tomorrow. And by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, each of us will have given three talks, and that's much better and will make me feel less unclout, seeming to have hogged this platform for three talks in a row. Let's have a prayer. Lord, what's going on in the Soviet Union is so enormous and has the potential of affecting so many people that that must be kept within the threshold of our consciousness and we must pray for the peace of that place and of those peoples. But we do come to this place needy and talking with you is a part of the answer to our needs. Teach us how to talk to you and when to talk to you and give us the words to talk to you. We approach you in the confidence that the circumstances of our lives, what other people think are little and inconsequential and of no import, you think of them as of importance because we are your children and like the faithful listening mother or father on earth, so you will listen and listen and listen to us, and your loving ears will never cease to hear our voice. In thanksgiving through Jesus, amen. Jerry, Marjorie, come up and tell us about rhythms today. <laughs>